2020 was a pretty terrible year, and that's excluding COVID. It seems like race relations in America were at their worst, especially in an election year. And it seems like they were at their worst, at least in my lifetime of a 24-year-old. I want to know what's going on and where are we going? Because it is a very serious situation when you have two groups of people, two groups of races that seemingly are so divided that they're different tribes, different countries entirely. So with that said, welcome to Cancel This. I'm your host, Angelo Isidoro, and today we're going to be speaking to best-selling author Shelby Steele. Shelby is a senior at the Hoover Institute. He's also a documentarian. Uh, he created a documentary with his son called What Killed Michael Brown. It's really good. It's on Amazon. And he is someone who has lived through the civil rights era. He was a young you know, civil rights radical. Uh, and now he has this commentary on Black Lives Matter and what is going on in America that I feel is really valuable and I would like to share with you. So with that said, please listen and let me know your thoughts. So as you know, uh, race relations and the topic of race in America is really prominent at the moment, um, as it seemingly always has been. I wanted to ask you a little bit about what's going on currently with the Black Lives Matter movement, with your documentary that you're releasing with your son. But first, I was hoping if I could just get a bit of a background on you and your life and, and where you were brought up and how you became involved with civil rights. Uh, OK, I'll give you a, a, a sketch, I guess. Uh, otherwise, <laughs> we'd be here all day and people would go to sleep. Yeah, the footnotes, footnotes version. Yeah. Uh, no, my, my parents. Um, met each other and married in the very early civil rights movement in Chicago in the 1940s. Uh, and so I was, uh, they were activists uh, before I was born. Uh, and I grew up, uh, they, they were founding members of uh, CORE, Congress of Racial Equality, which is probably the, uh, the, the organization that most defined the civil rights movement that, that merged the, um, the battle against segregation with the Gandhian struggle uh, against colonialism. Uh, so they were philosophically, spiritually, and otherwise very much involved in that. That's the world I was born into. Uh, and uh, they, throughout my childhood, they, they created the first uh, racially integrated church in Chicago. Um, uh, still there. They uh, made sure that the, the, the schools that we went to were segregated. I went to an all-black school. Next to us was an all-white school in the same school district. Uh, they organized a boycott, closed it down for a year, changed the, the teachers, the superintendent. So that I, I again, grew up um, where you, we, we were, it, there was this sense of engagement uh, as a moral engagement in transforming society beyond racism. Uh, and so that was my, my, my youth in college. Uh, in the 60s, uh, I was a leader of the, uh, in the, uh, the black, um, I suppose black militant struggle is the best way to put it. Uh, Stokely Carmichael, Eldridge Cleaver, uh, a long, long list of people and I'm, 
so it was sort of a part of that. And we were, our great distinction was that we were tired of the pacifism of the earlier civil rights movement. We wanted an activism. We were militant. We were militaristic in our thinking and in our uh, uh, approach. We, were, we, we demanded that America, we didn't ask America to give up segregation. We demanded it on pain of violence. And uh, there was this move uh, away from passive resistance to violent confrontation in the 60s. And uh, went on for a period of, oh, five, six, seven years or more. There's still some remnants of it around today. Um, I became, though I was a, led the student march into the president of the university's office and, and all that sort of thing. Uh, as I got involved in the world, I, I, I taught in the inner city for a number of years. Uh, I was, I sort of grew up, became initiated and um, saw the futility of this militant approach. And I began to question um, uh, the, whole, the whole civil rights involvement within American life and to try to understand it in, the, in a new way. And so that, that sort of began my career uh, as someone who wrote it, would, would write about, use writing to explore this, this uh, complicated American reality of, of race. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, and the reason why I ask is because I want to make a note to listeners that you're not exactly agnostic when it comes to your own activism as a young man. I mean, you've you've been through all of this, and that's why I think your your commentary on what is going on in America is really interesting to me, especially as a Canadian uh, who, you know, we're just looking over the fence trying to understand what's going on. Um, I, I want to ask you a little bit about America today in the sense that, you know, I, I'm, I'm 24, so I don't have too much of a life experience to understand what racism, you know, what, <laughs> I, I, I'm, you know, there's a narrative that exists that racism is at its worst, that there is systemic racism, that, that you know, there's police brutality and things are, are, are at the worst position they've ever been. Uh, I'm wondering if you could, you know, explain really the psychology behind the Black Lives Matter movement and what exactly is going on. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm asking that purely as someone who's just looking over the fence trying to understand why this conflict exists when it, it seems very clear to me that there are equal rights and, and, you know, everyone just seems to treat people like people. Why have things gotten so bad? That's a great question. Uh, I've written a little bit on that. I intend to write more on it. The elephant in the room, as I like to, to say, the elephant in the room in American race relations is the fact that we as Black Americans are not very much victimized by it because of our race anymore. We don't, we don't have the problems that people had when I was growing up in segregated America and every single aspect of your life was determined by, by your race. Well, we could only swim in the public pool uh, on Thursday nights uh, after seven o'clock and 
The rest of the time we have to sit and watch the white kids play. Uh, everything was, that was just the, that was the way of the world. Well, the formal legal oppression of black people is over with. So what is all, what is Black Lives Matter all about? What are they, what are they struck? One of the things that I think came that sits upon this problem that this generation young, of, of young Black Americans has today uh, is the fact that the Black identity is victim-focused. It's focused in protest against racial victimization. But here we are in 2020, and there's not much racial persecution around. You've got to look pretty hard to find it. What you do find are racial preferences that offer blacks all sorts of preferential treatment and advantages. Uh, you don't find you don't find open racism. Not even very many racist fringe groups. So how, if if your if your identity is focused, the true black is the black who's a victim and fighting against that victimization. And yet, there's not much victimization. What do you do? This, it seems to me, is the true dilemma of young Blacks today, millennial and so forth, of that age group. Uh, they, to be a, they want to identify with their, their people. They want to take a, a strong, uncompromising position. But there's really no, no victimization there to, to uh, it's, that battle has been fought. I was again. Oh, I'm old enough to have been a part of it and remember it. And it was a it was a profound struggle. It was a heroic. It was one of the greatest moments in human history. The, the moral overcoming. Um, well, there's today that just isn't necessary anymore. There's nobody seriously arguing for racism and segregation again, uh, except people on the political left who want to use it now as a preference to use race, as a preference to help minorities and so forth. They're still sort of devoted to race, but the rest of the world is given that. Well, that's the dilemma I think that young people face. And so what they, what we, since we don't have enough racism, what do we do? We invent it. We say, oh, you can't see it. It's not obvious, but it is systemic. It's structural. It's an inherent bias. You can't see it, but believe us, it's really there. And every and and uh, uh, George Floyd and Trayvon Martin and Michael Brown and all of them prove the fact that racism is systemic. Well, if if they if you only need Michael Brown and Trayvon Martin and a few others to prove that it's systemic, what about the three thousand black youth that were shot? two years ago in Chicago, one city, 500 and some killed, dead. And uh, no, no particular comment, not from the, from the president on down. Well, again, the, the, the contradiction is such with Michael Brown the, and Trayvon Martin and so forth, the, tr the finger that pulled the trigger was white. They were black. We had an instance, this is victimization, and victimization is black power. We, we blacks live in a society that's guilty about 
what it did to us in the past. And that guilt, our ability to manipulate that guilt is black power today. And so we are going to put on an identity, pretend that we're still per persecuted by race. And we're gonna come up with words like systemic racism to sort of to, to fill in that, make it look like, oh my God, racism is every is around every corner and, and, uh, and so forth. And I can be triggered and, uh, and I need a safe space and, and uh, all this sort of convoluted, self-indulgent political uh, uh, approach so it just sort of proves my point that, that uh, there's not enough racism for us to really uh, define ourselves against anymore. We, need, we now face freedom. Freedom is the biggest problem Black America has, not racism. Racism is, is diminished to nothing. Freedom is the problem. Can we compete with everybody else now uh, on, a, on a free playing field across the modern world? Can we, are we ready for that? Have we taken on that as our, as our black challenge? To me, I would like the center of the black identity to shift away from the idea of ourselves as victims to the idea of ourselves as free people, which we now are. And I speak as someone who was born into a world where I was not a free person and my father before me and so forth. Today, my children, my grandchildren are free people. It's, they simply are. There's nothing they can do about it. It's, it's the state of affairs in the world. It's a beautiful thing. But freedom is terrifying because suddenly you are responsible for your own life. You're responsible for making something of it. The fact of your color is not, is not going to help you or hurt you. It doesn't, it, it doesn't make you a doctor or a lawyer, or a businessman, or a professor, or whatever. You have to do that on your own, and, and you have to go through the, well, much easier to say there's systemic racism everywhere, and uh, I'm oppressed, and uh, therefore give me a, give me reparations, give me uh, racial preferences to universities, to, to American institutions, give me diversity programs, give me inclusion, give me uh, on and on, things that, uh, again, we've, we've gotten all those things for the last 60 years. And today, with all those pro social programs, $22 trillion worth of social programs, we are farther behind whites than we were in 1950s when we got absolutely nothing but disregard and real persecution. We were, we were closer uh, by every socioeconomic measure to whites then than we are now. In 1950s, black students graduated from American universities with slightly higher grade point averages than white students. They had a lower dropout rate. Today, after, after 60 years of, of, uh, of social programs directed to black students, black students have the lowest grade point average the highest dropout rate of any student group in America. That right there is our challenge now. If you want to be black, let's, let's redefine blackness as people who tackle freedom, make a life for themselves in the freedom that they have, who cherish that freedom, who identify with the society they live in, 
rather than against it. Who, who raised their children in, with pride, not just to be black, but to be American, to be a, a, a part of a society that fought against its, its worst inner demons and has gone a long way toward conquering them. Uh, that kind of black identity, it seems to me, is, uh, is where we ought to be going at this point if we want to continue to, if we want to progress, if we want to make progress. Yes, and it is, you know, a frightening temptation, uh, as you put it, where there are individuals, I imagine, and this could be human nature to some degree, where there's a temptation to sort of take what you can get uh, if, if, you know, maybe you're, you're not good at studying or, you know, you're, you're just mediocre. I would imagine that there is just an individual temptation there, but I also wonder, you know, something that, that's worried me that I've noticed is the fact that these great ideas that existed even in the civil rights movement, the idea that you should judge people based on the content of their character, that you know you shouldn't see people as differently based on their race or anything, you should just treat everyone like a human being, even that is actually sort of attacked now. Like I've, I've noticed, although radical uh, Black Lives Matter activists say, no, you should see us differently, no, we should have you know, segregated uh, schools where you have days, you know, one university in Washington, for example, um, the students created a day where only black students are allowed to go, the white students aren't allowed inside. That sort of precedent, which people like you and in your generation fought so hard to put an end to, it, it seems like there's a voluntary interest to bring back that segregation. Is that victimhood? Is that what's, what's fueling that? Absolutely. Uh, as, as I've written, race wow. is always a means to power. It's never anything else. Anytime anybody ever picks up race and uses it to explain something or justify something, it's, it's a means to power. Uh, and it breaks my heart to see young people, the age of people in Black Lives Matter, pick up race. The thing that, the, the concept that oppressed us for four centuries and used it to try to now say that, well, we are, race is important, race is, is some sort of atavistic, uh, marvelous, all-defining thing. And, uh, well, of course, what they're doing is the same thing the segregationists. The segregationists says race is the exact same thing, race is atavistic, it's a truth, it's a collect, blah, 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 because he then used it to, to segregate people and to steal their, their lives from them. Well, when Black Lives Matter says no race is important, we, we, we need university preferences and, and, and so on, they're, do, they're doing exactly, they're just like the segregationists. They are using it for power, they're using it uh, in a way that is, that is absolutely always, there's never any variance here. Race always leads to corruption. There has to be a corruption. If I'm gonna use my race and ask for a job or some special consideration, then I'm asking you to bend the rules. I'm asking you to exclude people who are not of my race. I'm asking you to dehumanize people, to get those people who are not of my race 
out of the way so that I might prevail. So I'm a racist. If you pick up race, you're a racist. And I, we ought to have not learned by now that this is something we can't, that is always evil. It never is, a, it never is for the good. It never serves the good, ever. Uh, and it breaks my heart to see a new young generation of black Americans uh, come along and, uh, and fall for that. And the truth of the matter is, I don't know how, uh, what, what the level of involvement of this generation is. I'm sure uh, many, many blacks today don't buy this at all, don't buy into uh, this idea of race. And, and uh, it's just that Black Lives Matter uh, get all this attention. And so it, it sort of pushed on blacks whether they wanted it or not. Yeah, and, and you know, the other side of it that is concerning as well is the fact that a lot of white people of my generation, you know, early 20s, whatever age they may be, have bought into the narrative of identity politics that all you are is your race. So as a white person, you know, I'm Greek, so I don't know where I fit in. I'm, I'm ambiguous. But most people I know uh, believe and buy into this idea that, well, even if you say you're not racist as a white person, you have implicit racism because of your privilege and your place in society, so you have to, to pay or, or be an ally. Like, there, there's, there's nothing you can do um, to prove you're not racist, as Robin DiAngelo says in, in White Fragility. Even if you try, you can't do anything. So it, it sort of puts everyone into this guilt stage. I was wondering, what are your thoughts on, on that side of it, where you have Black Lives Matter, you have young black people getting involved with that, but then you also have the, this sort of white guilt uh, that exists in America. And, you know, the fact of the matter is there, there was slavery. There is a history there, right? But I, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, civil rights was really the, the sort of end to that chapter, unless I'm completely wrong here. Well, yes. Um, I, I wrote a book on white guilt, uh, I think, I think white guilt is the number one race problem we have in America. There's one place that it, it's, it, it springs for, for, uh, from at this point. It is, it is white guilt. And by white guilt, I don't mean an actual feeling of guilt. I don't think whites feel an actual feeling of guilt. White guilt is the terror. And it is literally a terror of being seen as racist. And therefore, scurrying and running to sort of try to find ways to prove that you're not racist. And we blacks then, of course, say, make whites feel guilty because then they're desperate and vulnerable and we can make them believe all sorts of things. Black Lives Matter exists for white people, not for black people. Many, 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 many black people do not take Black Lives Matter seriously at all. Whites take it, take Black Lives seriously and say, oh my God, these poor people, and buy into the, the victim-focused Black identity. So, you know, there is this symbiotic relationship between Blacks and Whites. Um, and, uh, that, that, and of course, white America is extremely wealthy. There are all sorts of benefits they can give out, and they do. Um, and so... Black power, black manipulation of white guilt is rewarded. 
whites turn over their institute. You see corporate America now, they can't wait to have diversity programs and inclusion programs. They can't, they, they're gonna make sure they prove their innocence of racism by using racism. <laughs> that it's, it's part, of the, part of the irony. They use race to show us the evil of racism. Uh, but white guilt is, is, is I've, I've written, white guilt is black power. Black power is white guilt. They are, they are exactly the same thing. Uh, and it, it, it's, it is this right now, this relationship between agitated black students and white middle-class women living in the suburbs who want to put up uh, Black Lives Matter signs, lawn signs in their front yard uh, to, to say, to say, I'm innocent, I'm not a racist. Uh, well, as long as blacks feel they've got you on the hook, so you got to put up a lawn sign, and uh, then they, they feel as though that's real power. And they're, they're getting, they're seen in the world. They're, they're not invisibilized, they're, they're seen. And, and uh, so it's, it's, again, a symbiotic sort of uh, corruption that, that we, we are visited, we, we struggle with and waste time on today uh, when, when it's not the issue. What is the issue? The issue is the fact the almost complete collapse of the black family. There's a black underclass today. When I was growing up, we got no programs, nothing. We got brutality and segregation. And uh, we were farther ahead than blacks are today. We, there was not really a black underclass. There were poor blacks, but they were all working. Families were more intact. There were fathers in the home. We were moving up slowly but surely in American life. Now we stopped. We've got a huge, ever-expanding underclass. 75, 80% of black children are born without a father. I mean, what kind of, what sort of social program is that? You can have all of the, the uh, safe space arguments you want. <laughs> Uh, when you've got 75% of your group with no being born without unstable families, without fathers, that becomes a, 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 a profound human dif difficulty to, to surmount. Uh, but that's what I would love to see the younger generation focus on. That's what's got us, that's what's holding us back now, not white racism. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I, I want to ask you on the future then. I mean, as young people, we're going into 20, 2021 now. Um, there's going to be a new president, but I think this election was interesting in the fact that uh, a higher percentage of black voters, you know, comparatively to other Republican candidates, voted for Trump. There seems to be some kind of movement going on. You know, I wonder what are your thoughts on what the future looks like as well as what we as, you know, white people or black people, you know, Americans, individuals, what we all need to do to come together and recognize each other, you know, as human beings and just live life and move up and, and have some kind of positive symbiotic relationship. Um, you know, I just want to know your thoughts on what the future looks like and what we should do. Well, you know, again, in terms of what um, uh, 
uh, civil rights movement fought for, uh, we're, we're, we're in the future. Again, we're, the, the really untold story is, is, is the vast amount of moral progress America has made since the 1960s, since the civil rights movement. That's the untold story. Uh, I know what, what whites in that, back in that day, they, they thought of segregation as simply God's law. They didn't feel guilty about it or it's God's law. Well, we've grown so far from that now. Uh, and uh, nobody wants to, wants to argue that uh, anymore. Uh, so that, that's been achieved. Where, where we need to go from here, it seems to me, is, is the area of development. We need to develop the skills, the, the levels of knowledge, the, of sophistication. The, to, we've got to join modernity, the modern world and find a way to thrive in, in that world. We have to adapt now. After four centuries of oppression, we have the challenge of adapting. It's not easy, but, but that is what our challenge is. You, we, can, we, we can get all the white guilt money we want, but if we are not teaching that child, our child, uh, to read and write before they go to school, we're not putting them in competition with other children who, who are learning all of those things and who are going to thrive in this modern world. Uh, and if our kids are not doing that, then there's no hope. Uh, so it, it, the, the future, it seems to me, is I would like the young people in Black Lives Matter to, to simply wake up, simply sit down for a minute and think about this, wh where you're at in this world and all of the rich opportunities open to you, open to black Americans to do all sorts of things that, that were never there before, they are there now. And your challenge is to stand up to the almost snowstorm of opportunity and possibility that, you, that, that is coming your way. Uh, if we can make that shift and give up this idea that we have to make white people see, be ashamed of victimizing us and that's our way into the future. That we already did that as black people. We won that battle long, long time ago. I, I, I named the number was probably 1968, 1970. It, the argument was made. We, we were on a new path. Um, so please, I, I would, we, we have to make our future individual by individual. You, your contribution to being to blackness, if you want, if you if you will, uh, is that you have been made yourself into a doctor, or that you have made yourself into a businessman, or you have achieved something else there, an artist, whatever it is that that suits you as an individual. You are, as Ralph Ellison said, the group is the sum of its individuals. The goal is not to create the uncreated conscience of your race, but to create the uncreated features of your face. Become an individual. Become, if I have anything that is, is I've struggled for in life, the only reason I'm, I'm sitting here in this chair now is because I realized at, at a certain point, going through all black militancy and everything, I realized you have to become you. It's me. It's up to me. You have to make a life. This is there's no way to avoid that that challenge. 
the sooner we get there, the sooner we accept that challenge, uh, accept our fate, accept that we're free, the better off we will be. I think that's, that's a good positive note to leave it on. But before we go, uh, you and your son have created a documentary on Michael Brown. And it is my understanding that it is available on Amazon, but it was, it was taken down because they're, they like to censor people. But it is back up now. Is that correct? Yes, it is. They, they uh, called and said that they realized they had made a mistake. They, they, they put it back up. So, you know, power to them. I, it's disappointing that they would have ever taken it down in the first place. But they made good and uh, put it back up. So, yes, it is now available. Uh, it's also Perfect. available at whatkilledmichaelbrown.com. Uh, as Perfect. Well, we'll make sure to, to link it everywhere. I highly recommend it to people. It's really, really fantastic. And it's good to see a father and son working together that way. It's, it's really interesting. So, yeah, Shelby, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. It was a, a big honor. Well, thank you so much for having me. And hope I didn't preach too much. <laughs> no, it was all good. I loved it. That was the best-selling author, Shelby Steele. He is a senior fellow at the Hoover Institute, and he is also a documentarian with his son, Eli. They created a documentary called What Killed Michael Brown. As he mentioned, it's available on Amazon and on their website, whatkilledmichaelbrown.com. That was a really valuable discussion for me. I learned a ton. Uh, I hope you learned a ton. I hope you have a better understanding of, of... you know, what's going on in America. But what I really liked is that it ended on a positive note in terms of what we need to do in the future. We have the vision of unity. That vision was created in the civil rights movement. Now we need to just come together uh, as human beings and put aside our skin color differences and just treat everyone equally. To me, that seems not controversial. Uh, Let me know what you think. If you're watching this on YouTube, please like and subscribe. If you're listening to this on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, please follow. Please leave us a review. It really helps a lot. Until next time, thank you.